peace and love while I'm wearing the sheets, <laughs> but radicalization in the streets. Hey, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Elliot. And I'm Audrey. And this is the podcast where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes and instead get to know who they really were. Really round them out as people. Yep. Discover the caramel core <laughs> of that Rolo of a hero mm-hmm. and just bite on in. I do not enjoy this metaphor. Have you ever had a Rolo before? <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So now I don't eat dairy uh, and caramel has dairy in it. But before that, I loved Rolos. I never liked them. Why? The metaphor. Just oh. like, yeah. Because it felt like eating people? It felt it felt a little too intimate for me. Okay. We'll take it up with Mars. Yeah. The candy company, not the There's planet. There's some feedback. You know what I've been thinking about this week? I mean, every day, it could be something different. What are you thinking about today? The U.S. Constitution. I try to engage with that only to the extent that my civil rights are protected. Okay. Well, see, this is important then because we are big proponents of the First Amendment here on this podcast. Mm -hmm. We are pretty in favor of the Second Amendment and the other amendments too. There are only a few amendments I take issue with. Sure. You know what's not in the amendments? Um, I don't. The post office. You know why? Because it's in the real, like the first part of the Constitution. Before there were amendments that you added on, mm-hmm. Article 1, the first article, you know, the, the post office. Okay. I've been mad about the post office. I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> you are, you're real hyped up about the post office. I'm very hyped up. Um, I mean, I am too, but my like hyped upness manifested as like helping our kid make 11 letters that they mailed to their friends. Yes. I was like, we are going to take action. That was productive. Mm-hmm. Calling senators and representatives. Yeah. Also productive. Yeah. I mean, I think, like, the push to buy stamps is hugely important, right? Everybody buys stamps. But, like, blaming this on individual consumers versus, like, an actual sabotaging of a public institution is kind of sidestepping the point. Yeah. Just, sorry, quick diversion. The actual sabotaging was Mm -hmm. in the George W. Bush administration. And there was a piece of legislation that said that they had to fund pensions for the postal workers 50 years in advance. Wow. So they basically said, okay, oh, somebody's going to come here. They're going to work here for 50 years. They're going to earn a pension. We have to fund this like for their entire 50 years up front, Mm -hmm. which then made it look as if they were losing a lot of money. That's It's a total, like... Also, if the post office lost money, that's it's, again, beside the point, because it's a service. Yes. You know what loses an incredible amount of money every year? The military. The military. Yeah. Trillions of dollars. You know what loses a hundred... No, sorry, two or three hundred billion dollars a year? Schools. Yeah. You know, public schools. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, the fact that the postal service can actually turn a profit if you don't hamstring it with this stupid legislation is, like, a miracle of how incredibly useful it is. Anyway. Sure. This is a diver- it's not at all related this to today's podcast. Post o- yeah, this is not no. a post office themed podcast, but if you would like it to be, let us know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah meet, meet your, meet your post postmaster. Office? Postmaster. Uh, post person. Postmaster. Yeah. Yeah, meet your post person. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. Anyway, because we are not yet the meet your post person podcast, mm-hmm. that's quite a mouthful, who 
is our hero this week? Well, our hero this week um, was around centuries before the United States Post Office. So today we are going to talk about Martin Luther. Oh. Not Martin Luther King Jr. Two different people, believe it or not. Very, very different. And one is not the son of the other. (laughs) No. The junior is deceptive. Yes. Clarification. Martin Luther King Jr., a civil rights activist in the 20th century. Martin Luther, the leader of the Reformation and founder of the Protestant Church in the 15th and 16th centuries. So before that. Wanted to give credit to some sources at the top of this episode because I always want to do that for each episode and then I realize I forget or I read over it in my notes. So I'm going to do it from the top because I didn't do any of this like firsthand research. <laughs> I'm just compiling research. So obviously Wikipedia, that gives the like timeline, the general timeline of things. Uh, Britannica.com, there's a New Yorker article that I pulled a lot from. Um, and so I'd recommend just typing in Martin Luther New Yorker article if you're interested. But let's get started. Born November 10th. 1483. Are you familiar enough with the Zodiac calendar at this point to know what's happening? Oh, at this point, you say 1483, and I'm like, are we on, which Zodiac are we, like, is this even the same calendar at this point? I've been faked out several times. (laughs) This is a different calendar, but we're going with it, November 10th. Okay. Scorpio. Scorpio. Scorpios born on November 10th have so much strength of will that there is nothing they cannot accomplish. They possess a keen intelligence. However, they need to develop their spiritual side. If they do not, it becomes easier for them to be seduced by worldly attractions that bring little satisfaction. Mm. People born on this date retain a remarkable loyalty to friends, even if circumstances divide them, and they have the ability to bond with others on a spiritual level. Well, then, I wonder if there's anything spiritual about today's hero. (laughs) Little on the nose. Little on the nose. This one feels like we could actually loop back to it. Okay, okay. Right. We keep saying that every episode. And we never have. Never do. Mm -mm. By the end of the episodes, we're both very worked up. Yeah. So we forget about the, like, cutesy intro of the podcast. Okay. Let's see. This time, let's see if we can do it. Okay. Born, like I said, 1483. It's the tail end of the 15th century. So let's place ourselves in the timeline. Do you know anything that's happening in the 15th century? Europe, Germany, the world at large. Yes. Okay. I think I do. So if I'm not mistaken, Mm -hmm. this is what some academic historians have at some point referred to as the Dark Ages. Mm -hmm. But I would also say that I have been convinced through some scholarship Mm. that the Dark Ages is a statement about our lack of sources on the history, (laughs) not so much lack of enlightenment of the age. Sure. Yes. All right, that is a lot more um, heady than I'm going to get into. Glazed, <laughs> okay. Yeah, glazed glass begins to be seen on houses of the See? rich in Europe. We got glass. We got glazed glass. Um, the it? development of small spring mechanisms allows for the manufacture of small portable clocks. Look at this. We're just telling time all over the place. Oil painting in Italy begins. And, you know, obviously before... Well, I don't want to say obviously. Before that, they were using... Uh, tempura. But oil paint is like the first Instagram, basically. Mm-hmm. 
the Spanish Inquisition is formed to test the sincerity of Jewish converts to Christianity. No one expects a Spanish Inquisition. No one. Botticelli paints the birth of Venus. Got that oil paint, just going to town. Yeah. Roman and Italic typeface for the printing press are invented. Times New Roman? Mm-hmm. And the Renaissance is really picking up steam. Okay, so even though the name is Dark Ages, a lot of shit's going down. Yes. It is a time of great advancement. Martin was the oldest in his family, and his dad was super, super ambitious. He was political himself. They were a family of means, and they really wanted Martin to become a lawyer. In 1501, he's 17. He goes to the University of Erfurt. I'm not in E-R-F-U-R-T. Erfurt? I'm, I'm not going to correct you. Right. Which he later described as, quote, a beer house and a whorehouse. Which is like, yeah, that's fucking what college is. Yeah, here. come on. Sounds like a great time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's why a lot of people go to college, for the beer housing and the whore housing. <laughs> there we go. Okay. <laughs> <It's a> combo. <laughs> so, got the college experience. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, within four years, he has a master's degree. Manages to make it out in four years with a master's. Right. It's that, you know, 16th century master's. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a liberal arts degree. He graduates, and then he decides he's going to start law school, but drops out almost immediately. He, he he gets the master's and then goes to law school, but then that's too much and drops out immediately? Well, here's why he drops out. So he thought, at this time, he was thinking about law, and I had to reread this multiple times because I was like, that can't be what they mean, but it is. He thought that the law represented uncertainty, like there is wiggle room, you can negotiate, there's things to be challenged and changed. And, but he wanted truth and absolute and certainty. So therefore, he was obviously drawn to philosophy and theology. Oh, man. This seems so, <laughs> oh, my God, so confused. Yes. I mean, I'll put it this way. I'm sure there are a lot of lawyers out there who would say, okay, yeah, you say this is the law, but what can we technically get away with? Mm-hmm. And I can see the wiggle room argument. But then be like, okay, so I want the like most certainly certainty I can get. Let me go to philosophy. Yes. <laughs> oh man. He really enjoyed the use of reason in philosophy. You know, the logical through line would be this. Whatever. I don't know. I don't have a degree in philosophy. I mean, I'll put it this way: philosophy at this point, as somebody who uh, studied philosophy, blah, blah blah. Yeah, philosophy at this point. Uh, was a lot less messy than we consider philosophy today. Yes. So it was considered to be a lot more like cleaner and tidy of a mm-hmm. thing to study at, around this time. The real mind fucks in philosophy start like 17, 18, <laughs> 1900s, and then they're just like, oh, we're all screwed. There's, yeah. yeah, anybody's game. So he enjoyed the, the reason, but he believed that loving God was more important than reason and certainty. And he found philosophy to be skeptical of a god in that regard. You don't say. Yes. And this part really killed me. He, quote, thought reason could not lead men to God. Uh, Well, okay. (laughs) You're telling on yourself. I know. You're saying the part out loud, right? He thought that reason could be used to question men and institutions, but not God. What little I know of Martin Luther, his, his, like, issues with questioning the God authority here Mm-hmm. Kind of ironic. Kind of ironic. Yeah. I mean, he really, he didn't think that humans could question God or like learn about God through reason, only through divine intervention. In July of 1505, he's like 22. And this thing happens where he almost gets struck by lightning. Do you have any details on this story? 
I mean, the story is he's walking home and he almost gets struck by lightning. And at the moment that he almost gets struck by lightning, he calls out like, uh, holy shit. More like, (laughs) God save me, I'll become a monk. Something like that. Oh, oh, same, same (laughs) all the time. Okay. Right. So he immediately sells all his worldly possessions. He was like, God saved me. I have to make make good on my promise. Hmm. And he becomes a monk. So he has this farewell supper with his family. They see him to the gates of this, like, cloister. Mm-hmm. That's the word for it, right? Yeah, cloister, cloister yeah. And can he's we, like... Can we just clarify for mm-hmm. people who don't know? Cloister is, like, a type of monastery where monks live, where they, like, are just super cut off from the outside world. Like, little tiny windows, maybe just at the front. The rest is just, like, a big wall around mm-hmm. it. And, like, you never go out to, like, get groceries. You, like, mm-hmm. stuff's dropped off. You grow it, but you never interact with the outside world. Right. So he is dropped off at the door of this cloister, and he says to his family, bye, see you never, and that's it. So he becomes part of the Augustinian order, which... Like the devout Augustinian monks are all about the fasting and the praying and the confessing. He describes his period in his life as one of like deep spiritual despair. He said, quote, I lost touch with Christ, the savior and comforter and made him the jailer and hangman of my poor soul. (laughs) Well, that sounds rough. Also, you really... You kind of walked into a jail, so it's not really that surprising. <laughs> yeah. Um, he continues to study throughout this time. He's He ends up getting his doctorate in theology by 1512. So at that point, he's like 29. It's that 16th century doctorate where they're like, hey, you have a doctorate. Now you're in charge of these 11 monasteries all across Europe. 11? Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. But around this time, he's also starting... After a few years, he like starts to make a name for himself within the church, Catholicism. So he's no longer like a monk, but he gets his doctorate in theology. He's a priest, all of that sort of stuff. He leaves this cloistered monk life behind, and he's like, "Not for me. Right. I'm just going to go out and like be a be a youth minister." More like Rage Against the Machine. Oh, but okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So he, from the jump, he is skeptical of a number of practices of the church. So he's like de- devoted to the religion and the the rituals. The rituals, And yeah. a lot of the teachings, but he is really put off by a number of practices of capital C church, the church. And can we just say the church is just the Catholic church? Yes. Because in Europe at this point... There is no other church. I mean, there's Judaism and there's Islam, um, but not in big numbers. But the capital C church is Catholicism. And it's not only the church in terms of like religious, cultural relevancy. It's the governing body, essentially. Yeah. The Pope is a massive political player that like bestows power to the kings. Yes. And like is really wrapped up in it. So it's yeah. okay, Absolutely. So there are there is a secular government that governs, but it takes a lot from high. And so one practice that he takes particular grievance with is this practice called indulgences. I am not Catholic. I was raised Methodist and have only been in a Catholic church like three times in my whole life with you. Mm-hmm. Help me out here. Yeah. Okay. So I was I was raised Catholic. Yes, yes, yes. 
What okay. What is an indulgence? Is this the question? Yeah. So, I mean, I read and read a number of articles just to understand it because I honestly could not believe it was what it said it was. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, when you read it the first time, you're like, wait, no, that's yeah, a joke. Yeah, because I think of the Catholic Church as a, a body that takes great pride in rituals mm-hmm. that sort of absolve you of your sins. Yes. There are, like, okay. as a Methodist, I could just, like get down on my knees and be like, yo, Jesus, I fucked up. Help me out. But you have, there are like practices and rituals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there are, basically, there's there's two types of sins you can do if oh, you're a Catholic. Okay. Right? There's like the everyday, run-of-the-mill. Covet done thy fu- neighbor. Yeah, done fucked up sins. Okay. <laughs> and then there's like the real sins. Okay. Uh, and so, just to be clear... If you commit one of the real sins and then you die, you're going to hell forever. Okay. God knew you were, God created you knowing you were going to commit the sin. Doesn't okay. matter. Going to hell for eternity. Yikes. Yeah. Just. It's heavy. How it is. Okay. But if you're doing one of these smaller sins and you mm-hmm. die, then it's like, well, you did the sin. You can go to heaven, but you have to like hang out in this purgatory for a while. Yes. It's in between heaven and hell, and you have to hang out there until this sin is basically, like, scraped from your soul. Ooh. An indulgence is somebody saying, you were going to have to hang out. You have enough of these smaller sins where you're going to have to hang out in purgatory, but we will just give you a get-out-of-jail-free card. You get to skip purgatory. You get straight to heaven. If yes. you get an indulgence and the next second you just get shot in the head, bam, straight to heaven. You win. But you have to pay for them. Well, yes. That's what I, yes. This is the crazy part. Now, now, granted, just to be fair, there's other ways you can get indulgences besides paying for them. But the crazy part is like, if you give us money, we will just like talk to the big man for you and (laughs) get you past that. Like the fact that like taking your money is like they have the the hotline, like the red phone. (laughs) They're like, okay, we got the cash. Wipe out the accounts. He's back to zero. That's the crazy shit. I mean, I saw it described in one article as, just like you said, quote, a late medieval get-out-of-jail-free card used yes. by the church to make money. Yes. Yes. The fact, the fact that you could sell these things is like such a brilliant business operation. If you have access to God, what are you going to do? You could do miracles, make money appear. <laughs> but if, you can't, if, if you're trying to make the money appear and it won't, the next best thing is be like, if you have money and give it to us... We'll buy you stuff in the afterlife. Mm. You can't buy stuff in the afterlife directly, but we can buy it for you. Right. It's a great system. Yes. Martin Luther does not like this. And he really doesn't like it when this bishop, whose name is uh, Tetzel, his last name, Bishop Tetzel, comes to his town and is selling indulgences to make money so that they can build the build St. Peter's Basilica. He decides that what he's going to do is write... A thesis or a number of theses, theses, and deliver it to the archbishop, so the bishop's boss. On October 31st, 1517, Martin writes to the bishop and he is protesting against the sale of these indulgences. He encloses this letter, and it's, the letter is called like uh, Disputation of Martin Luther on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. Efficacy means he's saying they don't work? Saying they don't work. Oh. I know. Like, scandal. This is later, it it is now referred to as the 95 Theses. This is a piece of work. 
I've written a thesis before. Mm-hmm. 95 thesis sounds like a large amount of thesis. He also didn't see his writings or his speaking out as like an attack on the church. But at the time, these sort of theses, these um, documents were considered an opportunity to challenge an institution and provoke public discourse. It's like starting a conversation. Yes. These Get- are, quote, I wonder... Blah, 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 about these practices. That's Are he, they really when, effective? When he writes it, he writes stuff like, I wonder whether... I mean, blank. that's the interpretation is like, okay. um, we should question whether these are effective. We don't know, that sort of thing. So there's a piece of trivia I know about these. I'm curious if you have any information about if it's true. I've heard that when he wrote these, he didn't just like hand deliver them to somebody or like put them in the mail. He like nailed them on a the door. So yeah, this is another part of it. That's like what gets put into like junior high textbooks, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. It is likely that he would have because these were presented to the public. Like he delivered it to the archbishop, but this is sort of a... Uh, first step in a negotiation of ideas, and you and he would want to have included public discourse. If you had an open letter, you didn't have it online it's an op-ed. blog to put it in. Yeah. yeah, you didn't even newspaper to put your op-ed in. Yes. It was like, oh, I wrote this thing, so you could either hand out copies to people, which at this point you're either handwriting, or you just nail it up someplace where people can read it, hence the door. He is actually one of the first people who has access to a printing press, and this will be important later. But he does have this like huge body of work that he you know has copies of. I'm sure he hand wrote a lot of them. Mm. Um, And so he is thinking about these as more like provocation for discussion. But there is this sort of like undercurrent that is pointed. For example, thesis 86, which asks, quote, why does the Pope, whose wealth today is greater than the wealth of the richest crosses, build the Basilica of St. Peter with the money of the poor believers rather than with his own money? (laughs) <laughs> fair fair point. You got a lot of cash. Why do you need ours to build the basilica? Right. Yeah, so he's kind of like Robin Hood, you know, like protecting mm-hmm. the poor, challenging the rich. Meanwhile, this, bitch, this bishop that I, I mentioned earlier, Bishop Tetzel, had this saying, this infamous saying, which is, quote, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Money will save you eternal pain. Yeah. What the fuck? It's it, honestly, it's a <laughs> yes. If you, if the only thing you have control over is people's souls, it's a good system. Martin Luther again does not like this. He's like, you cannot buy your way into heaven. You have to be a good person, and any church that tells you otherwise is doing like this grave disservice to you to offer this false assurance in so many ways. The false assurance is bad for your past life, and it's really not good motivation to be good in your future life. He sends his copy of the 95 Theses to the archbishop, and he has this, like, explicit request. He was like, these 95 Theses are just a question, but this one very specific request, which is that you stop Tetzel from preaching and, like, trying to get money in my community. Like, stop tricking the poor. This one dude. This one dude. Get him out of here. Yes. So, you know, the whole bit about nailing it to the door, maybe true or maybe false, regardless, shit spreads like wildfire, just all over the place so quickly. Like, it went 16th century viral. Okay, 16th century viral. Yeah, everybody's talking about it. People all over Germany are responding to this. Folks start to make pilgrimages just to see him preach. 
but just to see Martin Luther preach. Yes. They're like, this is a dynamic fellow who has interesting opinions. Mm -hmm. And he was bold and charismatic. He really loved forceful dialogue. You know, the archbishop doesn't actually respond to these theses. Instead, he just checks it for heresy and heresy and then forwards it to the Catholic Church, like the church church. Oh, like the the big pope. Yes, headquarters, HQ. HQ, got it. Obviously, he's not going to stop the indulgences because they needed the money. Uh, The Pope at the time, it's Pope Leo X, noted, like out loud, was like, I'm used to reformers, so let's just, you know, execute the playbook for dealing with reformers. The first step in that is that the Pope deploys like an entire convoy of higher ups from the church to go talk with Martin Luther. Sends the delegation. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they're like, here's your opportunity. Just shut up. We'll forget about this. And Martin Luther is like, no, now I'm angrier and I'm going to get louder. And that's what happens. Around this time, he's also formulating these new ideas, uh, specifically about the concepts of salvation and divinity. I mean, obviously, we're not a religious podcast, so I'm not going to get into the specifics of it because I don't know them. Uh, I'm not a historian. But what he's doing is sort of like piecing together a religious paradigm that is slightly different from the Catholic Church's set of teachings. And that, above all the other sins he's committed against the church, is one that they are not about to have. Yeah, coming coming for the goods. So the church draws up a heresy charge against him, and uh, it goes about as well as you would expect. He has his trial. By the end of this three-day trial, Luther is essentially considered an enemy of the Pope. There's like this three, this infamous three-day battle between him and this really great debater from the Catholic Church. And they just like argue for three shouting, days. Like shouting at each other about, you know, the Pope's right and the Church's responsibility and what the Church can guarantee and how it's wrong and all of these like little bits and bits. They're arguing about the core, the core foundation of like, how, how dare you? Yes. Who gives you the right? Yes. And one of them's like Jesus and one of them's like, it's not Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. And so Luther doesn't back down. And the Pope is like, okay, we'll arrest this man. And wait, the Pope has like people to arrest him? Yeah. Yeah. The Pope is like, arrest this man. Man, it would be so much more interesting today in geopolitics if the Pope could arrest people. I know, I know. But Martin Luther escapes. He's kind of like, come arrest me. Fuck around and find out. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, why not? (laughs) The leaders of the church do not fuck around, and they do not find out. He just, like, leaves. Okay, Um, okay. But Calls her bluff. Yes. By that point, he is on the verge of excommunication. So at this point, he has not yet been excommunicated. The Pope says, like, okay, seriously, this is your last warning. (laughs) For those of our readers who don't have a multi-decade history in Catholicism, can you explain excommunication? I mean, barely. I can barely (laughs) explain it. It's like you no longer get to be a representative of the church. You no longer have the salvation we offer. You're out. You are shunned from this community. Yeah, you're cut off from the church. You're not a Catholic. You're going to hell. Yes. And so the Pope is like, Unless you recant 41 sentences, these very specific sentences, which question legitimacy of my right to have these indulgences, the church's right, etc., then you, you have 60 days or you'll be excommunicated. And this is all done like with a formal edict. Uh, it's called a, a papal, papal, 
people? People. People bull. And it's like a real piece of paper and has a threat on it and it is presented to the public. And it's like Martin Luther has 60 days to recant these things or we're going to excommunicate him. Yeah. All these eternal decrees and like settling of souls and like selling of salvation, all of this has a paper trail. Like it's very bureaucratic. Well, it had a paper trail until Martin Luther lights it on fire. Yes. He burned up the papal bull that that had this edict on it. Send it back to Jesus. And then he... He writes, he writes his own proclamation, sends it back, and it's called, quote, Why the Pope and his recent book are burned in assertions concerning all articles. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. The Pope does not like this. Oh. He excommunicates him within a couple weeks. The next year, there is this event called the Diet of Worms. And it's, the, it's excuse me, the diet of worms. Yeah, diet is like a, <laughs> I know, right? Worms is a place. Okay, okay. Diet Sp- smelled like the, regular worms. Oh yeah, yeah. Diet at the time meant like a convening body. So there's this convening body of in worms. Wait, worm. so like the council of worms? Yes. So here, let me give you the too long didn't read version. Please. It is an event that it's a jury of secular people deciding Luther's fate. So now the church has decided you're going to get out. But he has all these influential teachings that some people think are corrupting social structures. And he's like out there saying things he shouldn't be. Oh, so his challenge against the church gets him excommunicated. But mm-hmm. shortly thereafter, that that's considered a challenge against society itself. So mm-hmm. then there's like these like non-church, just political people who are getting a jury together being like, are you destabilizing society? What are we going to do about you? Absolutely. It convenes, and this diet <laughs> declares Luther an outlaw. They ban his literature. They require his arrest. Um, and they also make it a crime for anybody in Germany to give him food or shelter. And they say, again, basically, like, you can kill him on sight without consequence. Oh, damn. He escapes. He doesn't back down, though, right? Instead, what he does is kick off the Protestant Reformation. Kind of a big deal. He's really escalating things fairly quickly. Um, But speaking of Protestant, until I did this research, I had not put together that Protestant is a reference to protesting the Catholic Church. Yes. Like a Protestant is like a person who is protesting. Yeah. Specifically protesting the Catholic Church. That's so funny. I never just like put that together. He is not the first person to have spoken out on issues with the Catholic Church. One journalist, though, from that New Yorker article I mentioned, uh, her name is Joan uh, Cosella, Ocachella. She wrote a piece called How Martin Luther Changed the World. And she said, quote, the fact that Luther's protest, rather than others that preceded it, brought about the Reformation is probably due in large measure to his outsized personality. He was a charismatic man and maniacally energetic. Above all, to oppose was his joy. Anyway, from 1522 onward, this is after he's been excommunicated, the Diet of Worms, he continues preaching. Very scandalous. Is he preaching in Germany or does he Mm -hmm. have to leave Germany in order to escape this like death threat? Yeah, nobody comes after him. Eventually, he's like in a different city. Nobody's like hunting him down. So they literally said, like, license to kill, as soon as you see him, strike him dead, and people are like, eh, no thanks. Yeah, and the reason they're like, no thanks, is because his teachings had been 
uh, printed on leaflets, and they've started to be distributed to folks around Germany. And um, it's starting to radicalize a lot of people. So they're oh. like, no, we're not going to kill this guy who's basically saying the church shouldn't steal our money and promise us lies. However, that radicalization also leads to a really deadly uprising. And this, the the root of this these uprisings or this uprising starts in 1522. That year, he, Luther is... Uh, pretty famous still. He gives this enormous, I, I don't know, you're not Catholic anymore. What is it? Just like sermon? Yeah. Yeah. He gives this enormous sermon at the beginning of Lent, um, eight sermons, actually, the first eight days of Lent. And it's all about love, peace, and nonviolence. But he is also passing out these leaflets that say like, hey, uh, people, take back your rights. <laughs> like, so... Peace and love from the pulpit, mm-hmm. but radicalization in the pamphlet. Yeah. And so they didn't start out as like radical pamphlets. It's they got interpreted more and more radi- like radical interpretation as social systems got more and more oppressive. OK, how's this? How's this? And then uh, you know how the, the thing they preach in looks like these big, long white garments. Mm-hmm. So peace and love while I'm wearing the sheets. <laughs> But radicalization in the streets. (laughs) There you go. I like it. So by 1524, there are enough people who have had it with the church and the aristocracy, and they're like, we are going to revolt. And the Great Peasants' War begins, and it lasts about a year. It resulted in the death of estimates between 100 and 300,000 deaths. It's like a major failure on behalf of the peasants who are uprising because they have no weapons. <laughs> they have no like centralized leadership. It's just people slaughtered. Like they use the word slaughtered over and over again. Hundreds of thousands of peasants yes. die. I can only imagine after the first couple of peasants die, everybody else is like, well, we don't have any weapons. We're going after these people with weapons. We're either going to die or go back to our old lives. And they're like... Yeah, I'd rather die. Yeah. And so this is, you would imagine at this point, Martin Luther would be like, okay, I'm on the side of the peasants. People deserve rights. They're speaking out for what they want. I've been doing this. He inspired this in, in large part. He does not. In fact, even though he's like what we consider this dominant leader of the Reformation in Germany, he is kind of like middling on his opinion about the Great Peasant War at first. So he doesn't really side one way or another. He criticizes both like the injustices of the peasants and the rashness of the peasants fighting back. He argued that the work of the peasants, the chief duty, was farm labor, and the chief duty of the ruling class was upholding the peace. He rationalized that he could not support the peasant war because it broke peace. And he thought that that was an evil greater than the evils the peasants were rebelling against. In fact, buckle up, this is where it gets very bad. In 1525, about a year after the war starts, his position shifts completely to support the rulers of these like secular principalities and the Roman Catholic allies. So the upper and ruling class. Wait, he's against the peasants now? He is. He wrote a peace treatise called 
against the robbing, murderous hordes of peasants. In it, he encouraged the nobility to swiftly and violently eliminate the rebelling peasants, stating, quote, to kill a peasant is not murder. It is helping to extinguish the conflagration. Let there be no half measures. Crush them, cut their throats, transfix them, leave no stone unturned. To kill a peasant is to destroy a rabid dog. What the fuck? Yeah. Up until this point, he seemed like he was a real man of the people. And that mm-hmm. really turned a corner. Mm-hmm. Really turned the corner. That happens when people get some power. Because he starts to realize if these peasants are going to rebel against a current system of power, the more power he gains, the more likely it is they'll rebel against him. After the Peasants' War, he's you know pretty widely criticized for saying kill them. Yes. For saying kill them and it's no worse than killing a dog. Yeah. Yeah. He, you know, he responds in this letter like he does where he was like, you know what? I might have taken it too far, but the peasants yes. were like really they... violent. Around the same time, he's, you know, in his late 30s, he meets and marries a woman. Wait, he was a priest. Can he marry somebody now? I mean, he's excommunicated for one. For for two, yeah, actually he makes the biblical case that people like priests should be getting married because he doesn't think that there's any writing in the Bible that says holy people should be celibate and that it will lead to um, unholy fornication. And so if he's like encouraging, even when he was in the church, encouraging priests to get married, saying like, hey, if we have this need instead of, you know, sinning, why don't we create like this holy union and then it wouldn't be like so bad. Yeah. I mean, fun fact for the Bible people, it's it's true. All the early Jesus followers got married. Yes. The celibacy was like a thing the Catholics added way after the fact. Way after. Kind of invented their own and like kind of stuck with it. He meets this woman. Her name is um, Katharina. She's 26. He's 41. Their meet cute story is that he's helping 12 nuns escape a convict. A um, convict or a convent? A convent. Okay. <laughs> convent. okay. A convict is a very different story, but yes. sure. Convent. And of the 12, he returns 11 of them to their parents or he finds husbands for them. Katerine is the only one left at the end and he does not want her. He's trying to get rid of her, but she really likes him. She wants to be with him. She proposes to him. With the 26-year-old or whatever? Is it proposing Mm -hmm. to him? Yes. And he basically was like, you know what? This is a sign from Jesus. And he said, quote, the Lord plunged him into marriage. Us too, right? (laughs) Of course. That's how it happened. That's how I tell the story. A plunging of the Lord? Yes. (laughs) Apparently, they had a good marriage. Right. They ended up having six kids. She was very helpful in the marriage. He didn't make a ton of money, even though he was like very celebrated. Oh, I got, yeah, I got the sense he was like doing all right. I mean, after you have six kids and a wife, things get tight. <laughs> fair. fair. Um, so she, you know, farms. She sets up borders to stay. She manages their money. By all accounts, they have a great marriage. He actually says like, Quote, my Katie is in all things so obliging and pleasing to me that I would not exchange my poverty for the riches of Croesus. Croesus. I'm assuming that's a lot of riches. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's how you feel about me, too. I'm so obliging and pleasing. (laughs) (laughs) Would you exchange that for riches? (laughs) Is there an offer on the table? (laughs) 
<laughs> I know. Let us know. You can yes. find us at Your Heroes Pod on social media. Please. Uh, make us an offer. All, all <laughs> offers considered. Yes. <laughs> Um, anyway, so after this war, he's married. His wife's having babies. It's 1526. Luther is like, now it's the time. I'm going to start this new church. He sets up this new system. He writes new texts. He basically like edits the Bible and translates it into vernacular German. Wait, so can we just pause? This is a big step because what mm-hmm. he's just said, like up until this point, he's been like kicked out of the old church, been like mm-hmm. dealing with a insurrection and like, you know, playing both sides until he like gives up on the people. But he he starts his own church right now. Yes. Which is a big deal mm-hmm. because at this point, like Christianity was like a one dimensional one, one dimensional game. Yes. Right. Like there's like one one thing in town. What's what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. know. There's one game in town, right? And and then after this, he is like, Christianity, you got options. You got options. That's a big deal. His version of Christianity is not too different from the Catholic Church. It removes a lot of the corrupt practices that he saw, but he thought if he made it too extreme, even though he had some more radical ideas, if he made it too extreme, people would not be for it. Because you know what you got now? Competition. You got to win people over for your mm-hmm. Christianity. Like, you know, like, which one you going to pick? You know, yeah. that's good. That's good. It's smart. Th- strategic is mm-hmm. what he is. And no offense to any of our Lutheran listeners, but uh, I have often heard Lutheranism be referred to as like Catholic light or I like mean, diet Catholic. You literally said he edited the Bible, yeah. <laughs> right? Like she started with Catholic and he's like, yeah, good, this, cut these parts out. Right? right. Yeah, exactly. It's a move away from the church. But it's also a move toward the personal. So the Catholic Church at the time, I can't speak for it now, was an institution that had a set of governing principles that benefited the institution. And in a lot of ways, those governing principles were inaccessible to the everyday person. Uh, Lots of folks could not read or could not read Latin, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, everything happened in Latin. Yes. No, none of the common folks spoke Latin. Right. Like, the, if you went to the monastery or became a priest, or whatever, you got to learn Latin. But literally, every other religious service you went to was in a language that nobody understood. Right. And you were just like, you you were just trusting them, and they were saying what you thought they were saying. Yes. So he he in eleven weeks translates the Bible into vernacular German. This is like no, no small feat. No way. Yes. That's really fucking fast. that maniacal energy when he had a project just all in and really drew energy from fomenting insurrection. Sure. And so yeah, any okay. opportunity he dug in. Because he was on this mission to make it more accessible, everyday people ate it up. He gained a ton of supporters. He was incredibly popular. Uh, def- despite the fact that the Catholic Church was like the ruling body of the land and had a bounty on his head. People loved him. He became essentially a celebrity, like 16th century German celebrity, one of the most well-known people in the country. This suited him well. He enjoyed the attention. And, um, you know, he enjoyed having something to rail against. So he's done with the Catholic Church. He's setting up his own. He picks a new target later half of his life, second or like the last third of his life. His new target... Wait, let me guess. Man mm-hmm. of the people, it's the unjustness of the wealth of the feudal system, the kings, the political structure. It was not. Okay. Somebody powerful? It No. You and I know him as somebody who railed against the Catholic Church because it 
established like the Reformation and Protestantism. Yes. What he was really known to be antagonistic for when he was alive was his hatred of Judaism. Oh, wow. And also Islam, but mostly Judaism. I want to give a content warning because I'm going to read some quotes of his from his writing that are upsetting. The anti-Semitism is so upsetting that if people are sensitive to that, I want to give them the chance to skip ahead. Bail out now. Yeah, five minutes. Five minutes, we'll we'll be back at it. To kick us off... In 1543, in a in a treatise he wrote at that time, it was called On the Ineffable Name and the Generations of Christ. He, quote, imagines the devil stuffing the Jews' orifices with filth. He stuffs and squirts them so full that it overflows and swims out of every place. Wait, Pure what? devil's filth. What? Yes, it tastes so good to their hearts, they guzzle it like sows. What the fuck? Upsetting. Wait, wait. Mm-hmm. Where is he writing this? Uh, in a treatise called On the Ineffable Name in the Generations of Christ. <laughs> that, was, that is not the kind of writing I would expect in something yeah, with that title. Yeah, treatise. <laughs> yes. Um, and it's pretty well documented that Luther, throughout his life, was a fairly vulgar man. And he used a lot of his metaphors and imagery, relied on the use of or talked about excrement. Uh, And he used it to forcefully make a point. Example, when Judas hanged himself so that his guts ripped and as happens to those who are hanged, his bladder burst, then the Jews had their golden cans and silver bowls ready to catch the Judas piss. And afterward, together, they ate the shit. What? What the fuck? What the fuck? The absolute what the fuck. It takes a very severe turn. Wait, so he's... He, he just, like, promotes this anti-Semitism that's, like, fixated on his personal issues with, like, yeah. excrement? I mean, I mean that he uses that to make a point, yeah. like, the idea of shit making a point. But yeah. he, he has this fixation on Judaism because in, early in his career, life, he tried to convert a lot of Jews. And he found it incredibly difficult and... So he <laughs> turns out they don't want your, what you're selling. He took issue with that. Later, not so fun fact, at the Nuremberg trials in 1946, Julius Streichter, the founder and publisher of the Jew baiting newspaper Der Stürmer, quoted Luther as the source of his beliefs and said that if he was going to be blamed, Luther should be blamed as well. Wait, literal Nazis quoted him at the Nuremberg trials mm-hmm. after World War II, saying mm-hmm. he was the inspiration for them. Yes. He spends the last 20 years of his life campaigning against the Jews, like actively campaigning, saying, like, this should happen. People should be treated like this. He proposed these seven measures of, quote, sharp mercy to be taken against the Jewish population in Germany. So So, let's let's keep in mind, like, this is happening in Germany. A few centuries later, these things happen. Yeah. Oh, shit. So long history of this Mm -hmm. anti-Semitism. Yes. He said that to... Take care of the Jewish Jewish population. They should set fire to the synagogues and schools. One of his biographers said that his hatred, offensive abuse, and violent annihilation fantasies only increased with his age until his death. He said things toward the end of his life like, quote, If I had to baptize a Jew, I would take him to the bridge of the Elbe, 
hang a stone round his neck, push him over with the words, I baptize thee in the name of Abraham. Just kill him. Yeah. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. So this is not the sort of like peace, love, nonviolent Protestant hero that he has been whitewashed. Yeah, Lutherans. Sorry about this, but that's yeah. really rough. It's very rough. So right after that, right after he says these things, this 1543 treatise, he falls ill. He's old for the time. He's like in his 60s. His health starts to decline. He has like these dizzy spells, bleeding hemorrhoids, constipation, Ugh. urine retention, gout, and kidney stones. And to balance his humors, whew, the surgeon made a hole or a fontanelle in a vein in his leg, and it was kept open. Woof. This is rough. So at this point, he can't walk, right? He's very ill. And in 1546, he's required to go to his hometown or place of birth to settle some dispute. While he's there, obviously, he's like infected all yeah. over. Yeah. He dies. If you can believe it. Right as right after he dies, his corpse is given an enema to see if that would revive him. Oh, that's the plan? Mm-hmm. Man, I'm, medicine is real rough around this time. That's <laughs> what I'm remembering. Okay, yeah. okay. This did not work. It didn't work. Reanimation by enema is not a thing. That we know of. Mm-hmm. But doesn't stop us from trying. It, it does. <laughs> it it does? stops most of us from trying. In fact, it stops it. The vast, almost exclusive majority from trying. If you want to give it a shot, reach us at at your heroes pod. <laughs> Please, no, not that. You're welcome to bid on my husband, but I don't want to know anything about reanimation by enema. God, this is the grossest fucking episode. Okay, this one's bad. I will probably put a content warning on it because it it actually like as I was doing this research, I was like, oh, okay, he rallied against the Catholic Church, I'm sure there are parts of his life we don't know about. Like, we don't go into this looking for scandal. We're not always like, these people are thought to be great and they're terrible. It just turns out a lot of very famous people from history are very terrible. And, I mean, you walked in on me doing this research and I was making a face. The look on your face, yes. That's what I was thinking. Just horrified. I edited out some of the more gruesome, sort of like vulgar stories from his life. Oh, gross. Anyway, he's dead. They bury him shortly thereafter, and um, we know him in our history books as the guy who nailed some stuff to a church. He was vastly more complicated. So how do you feel? I would say I did not expect her to take that turn at the end. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think anyone did. I think that's why you have to do some digging to find out yeah. about his life. Yeah, the fact that we know him as the nail in the door guy mm-hmm. and not the, like, shoving excrement into heretics guy, mm-hmm. like, that's a real service uh, to his memory. Hopefully next week is a lot less gross. Please, Elliot, make it much <laughs> less gross. <laughs> much less gross. I'll do my best. Cool. Between now and then, what should folks do? Yeah, if you want to find us on Instagram, Twitter, Christian Mingle, Farmers Only, you can reach us at, <laughs> at Your Heroes Pod or www.meetyourheroespodcast.com on the internet. Contact us there. Yes. And again, entertaining any and all offers, please reach out. Happy to see what you got. <laughs> Until then. Don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye.